Welcome to episode number 17 of Calm History. This is a serial episode featuring part 4 of Titanic, My Survival Story. I'm Harris, and I created this time machine of tranquility to bring you the drama and excitement of history, but in a calm tone so you can just chill and relax. All right, this is part four of a Titanic survivor's first-person account. Here is a summary of the prior episode to remind you where things left off. Our passenger noticed that the ship was tilted forward as if the front end might be sinking. He described how most passengers were relatively calm, and some were even too calm. And the women and children were told that they will be the first to get into the lifeboats. The episode concluded with the men standing on the upper deck, quite confused and wondering what would happen to them. In this episode, you'll find out that some men are able to get into the lifeboats with the women and children, but most men remain behind while the lifeboats are filled. Some of these lifeboats are lowered easily and successfully, while other lifeboats struggle and chaos ensues. The cramped lifeboats, once filled with confused survivors, will row themselves away to put some distance between them and the ship that's in peril. This episode will conclude with the survivors in the lifeboats watching the Titanic begin to sink and wondering if they can survive in the frigid night. Part 5, titled Adrift in the Ice-Cold Sea, will be released on this podcast as a future episode. But, in the meantime, if you'd like to listen to all six parts of this story right now as a single, continuous, two-and-a-half-hour mega-episode, then just become a Silk Plus member. This is free for a limited time, and it also includes access to 400 other podcast episodes, including my other Titanic series called Titanic 360. In the Titanic 360 bonus series, you'll hear what the captain, crew, and other passengers were experiencing during these same moments as our passenger in this series. If that interests you, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com. Okay, time to begin today's historical tale. I hope it distracts and relaxes your overactive brain squirrels. Titanic, My Survival Story, Part 4 lowering the lifeboats. A report went around the men on the top deck of the starboard side 
The report, or rumor, was that the men were to enter the lifeboats on the port side. I don't know how this information originated. It might have just been an assumption because the starboard boats were being lowered first with the women and children. Regardless, this information was acted on at once by almost all the men. They crowded across to the port side and watched the preparation for lowering the boats, leaving the starboard side almost deserted. However, myself and two or three other men remained on the starboard side. I truly don't know why I stayed. There was no process of conscious reason at work. But my salvation seemed to be the result of being quiet and patient for some opportunity of safety to present itself, which it soon did. Soon after the men had left the starboard side, I saw the cellist of the ship's band. He came around the corner from the staircase entrance and ran down the now-deserted starboard deck. His cello was trailing behind him, the spike dragging along the floor. This must have been at about 40 minutes after midnight. I suppose the band must have begun to play soon after this and continued until after 2 a.m. Many brave things were done that night, but none more brave than by those few men in the band. They played non-stop as the ship settled quietly lower into the sea and the water rose higher to where they stood. Looking forward and downward, I could see several of the rowboats now in the water. They were moving slowly, one by one, away from the side of the ship into darkness, without confusion or noise. An officer, I think First Officer Murdoch, came striding along the deck. He was clad in a long coat and showing great agitation, but he was also determined and resolute. He looked over the side and shouted to the boats being lowered, Lower away, and when afloat, row around to the gangway and wait for orders. Aye, aye, sir, was the reply. Almost immediately after this, I heard a cry from below of, Any more ladies? Looking over the edge of the deck, I saw boat number 13 swinging level with the rail of deck B. In the boat were some crew, stokers, a few male passengers, and dozens of ladies. The boat was almost full and was just about to be lowered. The call for ladies was repeated twice again, but apparently there were none to be found. Just then one of the crew looked up and saw me looking over. Any ladies on your deck? he asked. No, I replied. 
and go ahead and drop down into this boat, stated the crew member. I sat on the edge of the deck with my feet hanging over the boat. I dropped a short distance and fell into the lifeboat near the stern. As I picked myself up, I heard a shout. Wait a minute, here are two more ladies. They were pushed hurriedly over the side and tumbled into the boat. One went into the middle of the boat and the other next to me in the stern. They told me afterwards that they had been assembled on a lower deck with other ladies. They had come up to deck B, not by the usual stairway inside, but by one of the vertically upright iron ladders that connect each deck with the one below it. These ladders were meant for the use of sailors passing about the ship. As the two ladies tumbled in, the crew shouted, Lower away. But before the order was obeyed, a man with his wife and a baby came quickly to the side. The baby was handed to the lady in the stern, and the mother got in near the middle. At the last moment, the father dropped down into the boat as it started to be lowered towards the sea below. Our final count was about 60 people in this one lifeboat. I could feel our small vessel sink downwards by jerks, foot by foot, as we were lowered. The pulley system lowering us made screeching and stretching noises as the ropes passed through the pulley blocks. The noises were probably because the ropes and pulley gear were all new and unused. These noises were accompanied by the boat crew calling to the sailors above to keep the lifeboat balanced and level as it descended. We could hear variations of lower aft, lower stern, and lower together. The black hull of the ship was on one side of us, and the sea was about 70 feet below us. We passed by cabins and saloons that were brilliantly lit. Surprisingly, I don't think we felt much apprehension about reaching the water safely. The ropes were new and strong, and the boat didn't buckle in the middle, as an older boat might have done. However, we didn't know at the time that some of the officers were unsure if the boats and the lowering gear would stand the strain of sixty people. Regardless of their concerns, I give the highest praise to the officers and crew for the way in which they lowered our boat safely into the water. We were spared the bumping and grinding against the side, which so often accompanies the launching of boats. Lowering a full lifeboat may sound like an easy task, but as any sailor knows, that is not so. 
an experienced officer has told me that he has seen many a boat lowered in practice. He has seen it done with a trained crew and sailors, without real passengers, in daylight, in calm weather, and with the ship just sitting in a dock. In those controlled situations, he has seen many boats tilt over and pitch the occupants headlong into the sea. I have the deepest gratitude to the two sailors who stood at the ropes above us and lowered us to the sea. I don't suppose they were saved. As we went down, one of the crew in the boat shouted, Feel down on the floor and be ready to pull up the pin which lets the ropes free as soon as we are afloat. We felt along the floor as well as we could in this crowd of people. We felt along the sides, but with no idea where the pin could be found. None of the crew knew where it was either. They just knew it existed. In the end, we never found it. We were then floating on the water, but our ropes were still attached to the ship above. We then had another problem. There was a water wash that was coming out of the ship right next to our lifeboat. This water wash pushed our boat backwards and directly underneath another full lifeboat that was descending above us. We shouted up, Stop lowering boat 14. The crew and passengers in that boat above us did hear a shout and also saw us below them. So they shouted up to the sailors on the boat deck to stop lowering them. Apparently, though, the sailors didn't hear them and kept lowering the lifeboats towards us. A stoker and I reached up and touched the bottom of this boat that was swinging above our heads. We tried to use the bottom of that boat to push our boat away from underneath it. But our boat was still attached to the ropes and not moving easily. At this moment, another stoker sprang with his knife and cut the ropes that held us. Our boat then moved away from under the other boat, and we were clear. A great sigh of relief and gratitude went up as we moved away from the boat that was above our heads. The other lifeboat dropped right into the water space that we had just occupied. We were then washed clear of the Titanic by the force of the stream and then moved further away by the use of our oars. I heard no one cry aloud during that experience. No voice was raised in fear or hysteria. As the oarsmen pulled slowly away, we all turned and took a long look at the muddy vessel towering high above our midget boat. 
like many moments from that night. It is one that is forever etched in our minds. I can't recall everyone who was in our lifeboat. It was hard to see the others on this dark, moonless night. And when dawn came, we were focused on looking for a rescue ship. The 60 people in our lifeboat were so cramped together that many were standing. My best memory is that there were about 25 crew and stokers, along with about 35 passengers. None of the passengers were from first class. There were several from second class, and the remaining majority were from third class. The crew in our boat was made up of cooks and stewards, mostly the former, I think. Their white jackets showing up in the darkness as they pulled away, two to an oar. I don't think they had any practice in rowing. For all night long, their oars crossed and clashed. If our safety had depended on speed or accuracy in keeping time while rowing, our fate would have been different. Shouting began from one end of the boat to the other as to what we should do and where we should go. No one seemed to have any knowledge how to act. At last we asked, Who is in charge of this boat? But there was no reply. We then agreed, by general consent, that the stoker who stood in the stern with the tiller should act as a captain. From that moment on, he directed us, shouting to other boats and keeping in touch with them. Not that there was anywhere to go or anything we could do. Our plan of action was simple, to keep all the boats together for as long as possible and to wait until we were picked up by other ships. The crew had apparently heard the wireless communications before they left the Titanic. They believed the Titanic was in touch with just one other ship named the Olympic, and it was coming to our rescue. They thought they even knew her distance. Making a calculation, we came to the conclusion that we ought to be picked up at about two o'clock in the afternoon. This would mean that we would be floating and waiting to be rescued for almost 12 or 13 hours. This was not our only hope of rescue. We thought there might be a chance of other steamers coming near enough to see the lights of some of our lifeboats. I'm sure everyone felt confident we would be rescued by the next day. We knew that wireless messages would go out from ship to ship. One of the stokers even said, The sea will be covered with ships tomorrow afternoon. They will race up from all over the sea to find us. 
although we didn't know it then, eight other ships were much closer than the Olympic, and most had heard the Titanic's distress call. Some of these ships were just a few hours away. Soon enough, we all saw the lights of a ship on the Titanic's port side. It was plainly not one of our boats. We even rowed in that direction for some time, but the lights drew away and then disappeared below the horizon. Did we see the lights of a ship, or were we tricked by some bright stars? In the evidence before the U.S. Senate Committee, the captain of one of the ships near us that night explained how the stars were so extraordinarily bright near the horizon. He confessed that he was deceived into thinking that they were ship's lights. He didn't remember seeing such a night before. All those who were in lifeboats that night agree with that statement. We were often deceived into thinking the stars were lights of a ship. Other memorable aspects of that night were the cold air around us and the water below us. It wasn't a windy night, just a keen, bitter, icy, motionless cold that came from nowhere and was there all the time. The sea was heaving gently up and down with a quiet motion that rocked our boat dreamily to and fro. The water slipped away smoothly under our lifeboat. I don't think we ever heard it lapping on the sides. One of the stokers said he had been to sea for 26 years and he had never seen such a calm night. Another person remarked, It reminds me of a bloomin' picnic. It was quite true. It did. A picnic on a lake or a quiet inland river. The peacefulness of the water was a large contrast to the tragedy that had just occurred. The supposedly unsinkable Titanic was sitting paralyzed in the ocean. It has been said frequently that the officers and crew felt assured that she would remain afloat even after they knew the extent of the damage. But the stokers in our boat had no such illusion. One of them told us about his experience when the ship hit the iceberg. At the time of the collision, he was making some hot soup when the whole side of the ship's compartment near him caved in. Water rushed in, and he was swept off his feet. Picking himself up, he sprang for the compartment doorway and was just through it when the watertight door came down behind him. He explained that the door closed like a knife, that they worked them from the bridge. He had gone up on deck, but was ordered down again at once, along with the other stokers. 
they were told to extinguish the fires from under the boiler, which they did, and then they were at liberty to come on deck again. It seems that this group of stokers must have known almost as soon as anyone the true extent of injury. He added mournfully, I could do with that hot soup now. And indeed he could. He was wearing the same clothes he was working in when the collision occurred. He was clad in trousers and a tank top, both very thin on account of the intense heat of the furnaces. His teeth were chattering with the cold. He found a place to lie down under the little platform where our captain stood. He lay there all night with a coat belonging to another stoker thrown over him. I think he must have been almost unconscious. A lady was next to him who was warmly clad with several coats. She tried to insist on him having one of her coats, a fur-lined one, thrown over him. But he absolutely refused. He noted that some of the other women were insufficiently clad, and they needed it more. So the coat was given to an Irish girl who was much more exposed to the cold air. This same lady, with the extra coats and wraps, was able to distribute more of them to other passengers in our boat. She gave a rug wrap to one and a fur boa to another. Even though I had changed out of my nightgown on the ship, I had carried it with me when I departed my cabin. I had thrown it into the floor of the lifeboat when I jumped in and then had not seen it since. But sometime in the night, a third-class passenger had found it and put it on. I was happy to see it was helpful to someone. Near to me all night was a group of three Swedish girls. They were warmly clad, standing close together to keep warm, and very silent. Indeed, there was very little talking at any time. Also near to me was the ten-month-old baby who'd been handed down to a woman in the boat who wasn't the mother. The mother had found a place in the middle of the boat and was too tightly packed to come through to the child. So the baby slept contently for about an hour in that woman's arms. When the baby started to cry, she said, Will you feel down and see if the baby's feet are out of the blanket? Wriggling down as well as I could, I found its toes were exposed to the air, and I wrapped them up well. The crying ceased at once. Obviously, it was a successful diagnosis. Most of my time, and probably that of others, was spent gazing at the Titanic from a distance. She was absolutely still. The sea couldn't rock her, and the wind was not there to howl noisily around her decks.
it seemed as if the blow from the iceberg had taken all the courage out of her, that she was settling down without an effort to save herself, without a murmur of protest, that she now had just come quietly to rest, sinking lower and lower, like a stricken animal. Only a few hours before, in conversation at lunch with a fellow passenger, I had made a vow to get a proper view of her when we landed at New York. I had wanted to stand some distance away to take in a full view of her beautiful proportions. I wanted to get a full view of the majestic ship that had carried me across an ocean. Little did I think that the opportunity was to be found so quickly and so dramatically. The black outline of her profile against the sky was bordered all around by stars studded in the sky. We could see that her front was sinking down into the water, resulting in her back section to begin lifting out of the water. The sea line and her lower portholes should have been parallel to each other. They should never have met, and now they met at an angle inside the black hull of the ship. There was nothing else to indicate that she was injured. Nothing but this apparent violation of a simple geometrical law that parallel lines should never meet. We hoped and prayed that she would sink no more and that the next day we would find her in the same position as she was then. But this would not be the case. This is the end of Part 4. Part 5 will be released on this podcast in about one to two months. But if you don't want to wait, then just become a Soak Plus member and you'll get immediate access to all six parts of this story as a single, continuous, two-and-a-half-hour episode. This is free for a limited time and also includes access to 400 other podcast episodes as well as my related bonus series called Titanic 360. If you're interested, then just use the link in the episode notes or go to silkpodcasts.com.